We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Arizona, Colorado, Indiana, Michigan, New Jersey, Tennessee, and Virginia. WinBet is now live in all of these states, and the excitement of Win Las Vegas has finally landed in online sports betting and casino play. From boosted parlays to live in-game offs on every major sport, WinBet gives you the tools to win. Sign up today for your risk-free $1,000 sports bet. Download the WinBet app now or visit wynnbet.com to start winning. Episode 217 of the Al Galdi Podcast. It is Wednesday, December 29th, 2021. And unfortunately, we are just hours off having learned of the death of a football icon. Rest in peace, John Madden. The NFL on Tuesday evening announcing that Madden had died unexpectedly. Uh, No cause of death was announced. This really is eerie because Fox just aired that John Madden documentary, right? All Madden. On Christmas Day, Fox had hyped that Madden documentary for weeks. And now here we are just a few days later and Madden has died. Uh, Really sad news. John Madden is one of the greatest and most important forces in football history, and that's what he was to me, a force. He was an all-time great head coach for the Oakland Raiders. He was a legendary color commentator for four major television networks in their coverage of the NFL in CBS, Fox, ABC, and NBC. And he was, of course, uh, the man behind his video game franchise. Madden NFL is maybe the greatest video game franchise ever. John Madden had a regular season winning percentage as an NFL head coach of 759. That is the best regular season winning percentage for a head coach who was a head coach for at least 100 games in NFL history. Yes, number one all time. So he excelled as a head coach, and then he excelled maybe even more as an ambassador of football with his work as a broadcaster and with his video game franchise. Uh, I know for me, and I'm guessing for a number of you, uh, John Madden will be most remembered 
as being such a significant part of the glory days of the Redskins. You know, there's something at least somewhat poetic about John Madden passing away just a few days after this hideous Washington football team loss at the Dallas Cowboys on Sunday night, 56-14, right? Because a game like that has you feeling so far removed from the glory days. If you're old enough to even remember the glory days, and I only experienced the back half of the glory days, but, you know, you have that game on Sunday night, and then you have the passing of a legend like John Madden who brings you right back to those glory days. The glory days of the Redskins were 1982 through 1992. And those just happened to be the prime years of John Madden as a color commentator. Pat Summerall on play-by-play, John Madden on color. Those guys called so many, so many big Redskins games on CBS in the 1980s and early 1990s. And John Madden always showed great respect to the Skins. John Madden used to name his all Madden teams toward the ends of seasons. And John Madden loved so many of the great Redskins from the glory days. You know, Gary Clark, the Hogs, Daryl Green, Dave Butts with his ravaged helmet. Uh, You know, I grew up in the 80s and early 90s. I used to so look forward to seeing which Skins players were named to the all Madden teams. So rest in peace, John Madden. And with that, I say hello and welcome to a Wednesday installment of the Al Galdi Podcast. It is nice to be with you, however you are with us, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher. Uh, John Madden is a link to the glory days of the team currently known as the Washington football team. What we are in the midst of right now is not what you would call the glory days. Uh, That loss at the Cowboys on Sunday Night Football was gory, not glory. Uh, I have a special guest for you on this installment of the pod to talk Washington football. Barry's Verluga, columnist for the Washington Post. He just wrote a column asking an uncomfortable but necessary question. Two years in, how much better off is Washington under Ron Rivera? Ron Rivera, by the way, a huge fan of John Madden. Ron has talked about Madden having been a mentor to Ron. Uh, Next segment, I will talk Washington football team with. They have a few things regarding Taylor Heineke, including something that I'm guessing is going to surprise you. Uh, Also on the show, I'll discuss the Wizards. Uh, They're now at 500 on the season off a 119-112 loss at the Miami Heat on Tuesday night. Although the Wiz for this game had eight players in the NBA's health and safety protocols. Maryland basketball played on Tuesday night, played for the first time in more than two weeks. I'll give you my thoughts on a 76-55 win over Lehigh at Xfinity Center and College Park. And we have college football to get into. I have a Goldilocks pick for you for Maryland versus Virginia Tech in the Pinstripe Bowl at Yankee Stadium on Wednesday afternoon at 2.15. But before we move any further, in honor of John Madden, I want to play something for you. Uh, This was the open for CBS's telecast of a massive game between the Redskins and the New York Giants in the 1986 regular season. December 7th, 1986, the Skins versus the Giants at RFK Stadium. The Skins were 11-2. The Giants were 11-2. This was what the NFC East was back then. This was what the Skins were back then. Uh, Now, the Skins lost the game 24-14 and then lost at the Giants in the NFC Championship game 
for that season, 17-0, although the Skins then won the Super Bowl for the following season. But take a listen to this open for the game. You're not going to hear John Madden in the open, but this is an open for a game that was broadcast on CBS and, of course, was called by Pat Summerall and John Madden. And tell me that this does not give you chills. Here you go. The Washington Redskins offensive line is one of football's best, but today their reputation will be challenged by Lawrence Taylor in a fired-up New York defense. The Giants are confidently riding the crest of a six-game winning streak. And with the right calls from Phil Simms, they hope to roll a seven today. The Giants also face some stiff challenges today. First, their defense must contain Washington's fleet receivers, like Gary Clark. And their unheralded pass blockers will have to contend with Dexter Manley, one of the best pass rushers in the NFL. Manley relishes the spotlight, and today it shines brightly in the season's biggest game. Joe Morris ran the Giants to victory in their first meeting, but today's rematch is at RFK Stadium, where the skins are hard to beat and where tickets are impossible to find. How about that? How great was that? Look, I didn't even start following sports until 1987, so I have no memory of this Redskins-Giants game from 1986, but upon learning of the passing of John Madden, I spent a good bit of time on Tuesday night just watching a bunch of John Madden stuff on the internet, and I came across this open for this game on YouTube, and I was like, wow, I got to play this on the podcast, because That open for this game between the Skins and the Giants at RFK takes me back to, shall we say, a much better time, a much more innocent time for us as Washington football fans. And how about Pat Summerall saying that tickets are impossible to find for games at RFK Stadium? Joe Morris ran the Giants to victory in their first meeting, but today's rematch is at RFK Stadium, where the skins are hard to beat and where tickets are impossible to find. Yeah, there you go. Ain't nobody saying that about games at FedEx Field. Uh, you can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. I got plenty of feedback to something that I talked about on Tuesday's show, episode 216, the notion of the Washington football team trading Deron Payne, not because of his sideline skirmish with Jonathan Allen on Sunday night, but because Washington, to me, is overinvested in a defensive line that, while good, isn't great and isn't resulting in the overall team defensive success for which we had hoped. Uh, Deron Payne is under contract through next season by the fifth-year option in his rookie contract. So Washington, in theory, is going to have to decide sometime relatively soon whether to pay him big money via a long-term contract. Tweet from Junior Walker Jr. If this team had every other spot locked down, 
then keep pain as a luxury. But there's a bit of a log jam at a few spots on the defensive line, and trading some of that strength to shore up other areas is a good idea. Tweet from Zim. Actually, tweets from Zim. I hated the pick at the time. Hate the pick just as much now. You have to diversify your talent. This isn't even about pain specifically. This is just basic roster building. You can't dump all of that money and all of those picks into one position group. In terms of Payne himself, he's a decent run-stuffing defensive tackle who is inconsistent in his pass rush in a period of time in which run defense has zero correlation analytically with postseason success. It's a bad investment to re-sign him, so get some value back. Tweet from Rick Proctor. I would trade Chase Young for two first-round picks and a second-round pick, and I would trade Montez Sweat for a first-round pick and a second round pick. I want players who play gaps and hold the line, not pound their chests in the middle of plays still happening. We don't need that as a team. Uh, have Chase Young and Montez Sweat pounded their chests while plays are still happening? Uh, maybe. I can't say that I've seen that. Uh, you're not getting two first round picks and a second round pick for Chase Young right now. Not off the 2021 season that he had, and not off him coming off a torn right. ACL. The problem with trading Chase Young and or Montez Sweat this offseason would be that each guy has had a down 2021 given his potential. So you'd be trading each guy at a relatively low value point. You never want to do that, right? You want to sell high and buy low. It's like the stock market. To say nothing of the potential that still very much exists for Chase Young and Montez Sweat to be great. I mean, nobody's thrilled with the 2021 season's that Chase Young and Montez Sweat have had, but I'd like to think that each guy will bounce back big time next season. Uh, By the way, the Washington football team this coming offseason will have to decide on the fifth-year option for Montez Sweat. I would exercise that. I expect Washington to exercise that, but that's a reminder that we're not that far away from Washington having to decide whether to pay Montez in terms of a big-money long-term contract. Email from Sean Moran on the Washington football team. Hey, Al, I continue to enjoy the pod as a balm on a cut that just won't heal called my Washington fandom. I preface this with I, unfortunately, will still pay attention to this, quote, organization, end quote. However, I see no good coming in the future for this team. Bullet points. Bullet point number one. The owner, Nuff said. Bullet point number two. No quarterback. Why would a good quarterback want to come here? Thus, no Aaron Rodgers, if he's even traded at this point. No Russell Wilson. No Deshaun Watson, if legal matters are ever cleared. We don't need a mediocre quarterback or a quarterback on the downside of his career. The draft supposedly lacks quality quarterback talent. Who knows? Do you trust this organization to identify a franchise quarterback? Bullet point number three, the league. The league doesn't care. No rescue raft for this once proud franchise. The Mara influence can't be ignored. John Mara pushed for that salary cap penalty in 2012. He loves that this team is floundering. The league, you would think, would want to help this market return to viability, but the league hasn't helped and won't help. The league has empowered and emboldened Napoleon as owner. Bullet point number four, why would Terry McLaurin re-sign here? long-term when the team doesn't have a stable 
franchise quarterback. Bullet point number five, the stadium. Do people forget or just not know how difficult it was for Jack Kent Cook to get a stadium? The team was at its peak popularity and still could not get a deal. Thus, Raljon and FedEx Field were born. 2021, and the team still can't get a stadium deal. If the report of the team going to Virginia comes to fruition, kiss the Maryland part of what's left of the fan base goodbye. Bullet point number six, karma. If it can happen, it does happen to this team. Lawsuits, investigations, injuries, COVID all seem to hit this team in hard, LOL, bad public relations. Let's just stick with this year, covering up trying to get the persons involved in the investigation of wrongdoing by Washington football team employees to be quiet. The Sean Taylor jersey retirement fiasco, the dragging out of the changing of the name, which caused more consternation within what's left of the fan base. Benchgate with Dallas, using said benches in two terrible losses. The fight on the sideline on national television in an embarrassing loss in what used to be a flag-bearing rivalry for the league. So tell me I'm wrong, Al. Tell me there is hope. I see it not. I have kids. They have no idea that this franchise had a robust fan base. They laugh when I say that the team used to be a perennial playoff contender and be in the discussion for the Super Bowl. This is where we are. Wow. Uh, Thank you for that email, Sean. Uh, There is a lot there. Uh, All of it is valid to varying degrees. The hope truly would have to do with a few things. And it's up to you whether you should have hope. Uh, But if you do have hope, and I do have hope, uh, the hope is predicated on a few things. I will give you some bullet points of my own. Uh, Bullet point number one, the NFL as a salary capped league is designed to have parity, right? And we all know that. Uh, The NFL is designed to be a league in which every team has a chance. The NFC East is maybe the ultimate example of this. So the Cowboys on Sunday clinched the NFC East. The Cowboys winning the NFC East this season means that the NFC East has not had a repeat division winner for 17 consecutive seasons. That is an NFL record. The last team to win consecutive NFC East titles is the Philadelphia Eagles, who won four consecutive NFC East titles from 2001 through 2004. But Washington is in a division that perfectly exemplifies the parody of the modern-day salary-capped NFL. Bullet point number two, Ron Rivera. If you believe in Ron, if you have faith in the Rivera era, and again, that's an if, but if you do, then you have hope that he can be the guy who gets this program on track. And bullet point number three, franchise quarterback. An NFL team is a complicated organism, but in some ways, an NFL team is super simple. If you have a franchise quarterback, you very much have a chance. And if you don't have a franchise quarterback, you pretty much don't have a chance. Now, there are caveats and exceptions to that, but there also is an overarching truth to that. And if Washington ever acquires a quarterback who ends up being a franchise quarterback, and that is an enormous if, I get that, but if Washington ever acquires a quarterback who ends up being a franchise quarterback, it is on. It is so on. And what is becoming clear and clear is that Washington this offseason will be making an all-out push to acquire a franchise quarterback. But yeah, uh, I get not having hope right now. It's not easy to have hope right now. Uh, Hope for Washington football team fans right now isn't common. 
Skin cancer, unfortunately, is common. Uh, skin cancer is among the most common of all cancers in the United States. You like that transition? Uh, if you have concerns about your skin, if you are dealing with skin cancer, if you have had skin cancer and haven't seen a doctor in a while, always know that Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland are there for you. Dr. George Verghese is a board-certified dermatologist and Mohs surgeon. He is one of the nation's premier dermatologists. He is a big Washington football team fan and listener of this podcast. And operating under his direction is the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. The Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland diagnoses and treats a broad range of acute and chronic skin conditions, including skin cancer. In fact, Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offer free skin cancer screenings and offer state-of-the-art treatments for skin cancer. Among those treatments is superficial radiation therapy, or SRT, which is an alternative to surgical procedures for basal cell and squamous cell skin cancers. SRT is safe, effective, and non-surgical. You see, having skin cancer doesn't mean having to have surgery and the downtime and side effects, cosmetic and otherwise, that come with surgery. You have options. SRT is an option. And Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offer the option of SRT, unlike many other dermatology practices in the area. And SRT is covered by most insurances. To find out more, call 301-396-3401. Make sure you tell them that Al Galdi sent you. That phone number again, 301-396-3401, or visit midatlanticskin.com. That's midatlanticskin.com. Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland, nationally recognized for treating skin cancer across the Mid-Atlantic region. Well, before we get to our special guest talking Washington football team, Barry's Verluga, columnist for the Washington Post, uh, let us right now talk Washington football team amongst ourselves and actually want to hit on a few things regarding Taylor Heineke. So just to be clear, the conversation of Washington entering next season, giving Taylor Heineke more of a look as a potential franchise quarterback is over, okay? That's done. Now, that doesn't mean that Taylor Heineke shouldn't be on Washington next season. I think that he should be. He is under contract for next season and at a super cheap price. But Washington this offseason clearly needs to aim higher at the quarterback position. Taylor Heineke has proven so many of his doubters wrong. He does belong in the NFL. He is capable of playing at a high level, but he has been a high variance quarterback this season. And his bad games have been really bad, including his last two games, which have been Washington's two losses to the Dallas Cowboys this season. Uh, Next season will be Taylor Heineke's age 29 season, you know, so it's not like he's in his early 20s. Now, quarterbacks can play well deep into their 30s, if not 40s, but, you know, it should be understood. It's not like this is a guy who's on the rise in terms of, you know, just entering his athletic prime or anything like that. Now, look, if next season Taylor Heineke somehow ends up starting a bunch of games for Washington again and is great, then we can reevaluate. But right now, it's impossible for even the biggest Taylor Heineke proponent to make a credible argument that Washington this offseason should not try to do better at the quarterback position. So that said, something that has really stood out to me over the last few days is how perturbed Ron Rivera seems to be over Taylor Heineke's first interception in the 54-16 loss 
at the Cowboys on Sunday night. Washington's first offensive drive, the lone snap of the drive on a first and 10 for Washington at its 28. Taylor Heineke on an under center play action bomb intended for Terry McLaurin through a first quarter interception to corner Trayvon Diggs. And this was, of course, an absolute gut punch. Washington's first offensive snap of the game results in a turnover. Uh, Here was Ron Rivera on Monday afternoon during his day after the game Zoom press conference on Heineke's performance in the loss at the Cowboys, a performance that yielded a total QBR per ESPN of 4.0. Total QBR is on a scale of 0 to 100. Heineke's total QBR for Sunday night was 4.0. That's atrocious. Uh, Anyway, Ron on Monday. I thought Taylor missed some opportunities. Um, I I do think he got a little bit rattled and started throwing off his back leg a couple times. He had a couple opportunities that that I know that – if he could have, you know, really stood tall in there, he, he'd, have, he'd have completed those. Um, the very first throw um, was, 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 was unfortunate because he had Terry. If he could have put that out to the sideline, I think Terry makes that play. I, I think that's a big play. Um, unfortunately, he hung it out and it, and it stayed more to the middle. I mean, if that ball gets to the sideline, it's either a big catch for Terry or it's incomplete. All right, so that was Ron Rivera on Monday afternoon bringing up and breaking down Taylor Heineke's interception to Trayvon Diggs. Then this was Ron Rivera on Tuesday morning during his weekly appearance on the Sports Junkies on 106.7 The Fan on how Taylor Heineke played in the loss at the Cowboys. Well, you know, there were some missed opportunities. Uh, You know, I I really thought, obviously, the very first play, I I like the aggressive nature. I like coming out and throwing the ball deep. I would have loved to have seen him get the ball outside, you know. Sure. If he can put that ball where it needed to be put, I think it's either a, a, a big play by Terry or it's an incompletion, more so than you know having the ball inside. And 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 again, that's something Taylor knows and something Taylor's got to make sure he gets done. I mean, and that was kind of the unfortunate part. There were a couple other opportunities I thought he could have made um, and he missed. I do think one thing is that we've got to be a little bit more efficient when we're running the ball because when we did run the ball and we ran it successfully. Um, you know, we kept them off balance. And, and that's really the key to these guys. You've got to be able to attack them and keep them off balance. You can't let them get settled. And, and one thing you can't do is you can't let them play with a lead, especially with the, uh, the, 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 the aggressive nature of their defense. All right. So there was Ron again bringing up and breaking down Taylor Heineke's interception to Trayvon Diggs. Note, each time Ron was not asked specifically about the interception, Ron brought up the interception unsolicited. Uh, Ron on Monday afternoon and then again on Tuesday morning said that Taylor Heineke on Sunday night missed some opportunities and made it a point to dissect that interception to Trayvon Diggs. Now, it's not like Ron trashed Heineke in these responses, but as we have learned to speak Ron, uh, as we have learned Ron speak over the last two years, uh, we can tell that that Heineke interception to Diggs bothers Ron. You know, that play stands out to Ron as a major missed opportunity. Now, it's unlikely that that play, had it resulted in a big completion, would have changed the ultimate outcome of the game. But that doesn't matter. What Ron thinks matters. And he clearly thinks that Heineke blew it on that play. Uh, Ron has been very loyal to Taylor Heineke this season. I don't know that Ron ever truly seriously thought that Taylor Heineke might be a franchise quarterback for Washington, but Ron has brought up the possibility publicly. And like I said, I think that we're all now at a point at which it just isn't credible to say that Washington should go all in on Heineke as the potential franchise quarterback. Uh, You know, you could argue it was never credible to say that. But as Taylor Heineke did well through various portions of this 2021 
Washington football team regular season, you did wonder, or, or at least I wondered. You know, I was always open to, hey, you know what? Who knows what this guy could end up being, understanding that it was more likely than unlikely that Taylor Heineke was not going to end up being a franchise quarterback for Washington. Uh, keep Heineke, have him as your QB2 for next season, maybe even your QB1 to begin next season if you draft a quarterback and you want to sit him for the first few weeks of the season. But Washington clearly needs to aim higher at the quarterback position. However, I do want to note this about Taylor Heineke's 2021 season. The context matters. The context matters a lot. You have to be fair in evaluating Heineke, and being fair means acknowledging two things. And one of the things is widely known. The other one of the things I think is barely known. So the thing that is widely known is that Washington's offense has been shredded by injury for so much of this season. But the thing that is barely known, and it's a thing that I tweeted on Tuesday, is that Taylor Heineke has faced the toughest schedule of opposing pass defenses among all qualified quarterbacks in the NFL this season. Yeah. Did you know that? Taylor Heineke, through week 16, per Football Outsiders, has faced the toughest schedule of opposing pass defenses among all qualified quarterbacks in the NFL in the 2021 regular season. Uh, In case you're curious, the methodology for this involves subtracting quarterbacks' YAR numbers. YAR stands for yards above replacement from those quarterbacks' DYAR numbers. Uh, DYAR stands for defense adjusted yards above replacement. Uh, YAR and DYAR are similar to wins above replacement war in baseball. I'm not going to bore you with the math. Just understand that no qualified quarterback in the NFL has a greater difference between those two metrics for him this season than Taylor Heineke has. Uh, Here are the rankings through week 16 in pass defense for Football Outsiders DVOA metric for some of the teams that Heineke has faced so far this season. The Dallas Cowboys, whom Heineke, of course, has faced twice and not done so well against. Number one, Yeah, the Cowboys are number one in the NFL in pass defense per DVOA this season. The Buffalo Bills, number two. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers, against whom Taylor Heineke killed it, number four. The New Orleans Saints, against whom Taylor Heineke was terrible, number seven. The Carolina Panthers, against whom Taylor Heineke killed it, number nine. The Kansas City Chiefs, number 13. The Green Bay Packers, Number 14, six of Taylor Heineke's 15 games this season have come against teams that are currently in the top 10 in the NFL in pass defense per DVOA. Now, again, I'm not trying to make the argument that Taylor Heineke is a franchise quarterback, and I'm not trying to say, hey, excuse him for his last two performances. No, his last two performances have been brutal. But who you play matters a lot in the NFL. The regular season, even with the expansion, still is only 17 games. That's it, 17 games. A team schedule is a big deal. And any evaluation of Taylor Heineke needs to include the reality that he, by the standards of the best metric out there for evaluating NFL team efficiency, DVOA, 
has faced the toughest schedule of opposing pass defenses among all qualified quarterbacks in the NFL this season. Up next, I'll welcome on Barry's Verluga, columnist for the Washington Post, to talk about what is maybe the biggest question off the Washington football team's loss at the Cowboys on Sunday night. Two years in, how much better off is Washington under Ron Rivera? We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, time now for our special guest to talk Washington football team off it falling to 6-9 and nine with the 56-14 loss at the Dallas Cowboys on Sunday night. I'm very pleased to welcome back to the Al Galdi podcast, Barry's Verluga, columnist for the Washington Post. You can follow Barry on Twitter at Barry's Verluga. And his latest column, which you can read at WashingtonPost.com, is a really good one and asks an important question. Two years in, how much better off is Washington under Ron Rivera. Barry, happy holidays. How are you? Great, Al. Thanks for having me. Happy holidays to you. I appreciate you coming on. So yeah, two years in, how much better off is Washington under Ron Rivera? Simple question, complicated answer. In trying to organize your thoughts for the column, what was your thought process? Because there are so many ways to approach that question. Well, I think it was more, less, I guess, about how we think of Ron Rivera as a forward-facing figure, and and in general, and this is you know really in general, I think most people would say he's done a, a good job of being kind of steady and professional. Um, you know, despite the times he gets a little impatient with the media, and and you know that's typical coach stuff. Um, and so you kind of get removed from the the kind of folksy yucks, you know, jokes of Jay Gruden, and that kind of felt disorganized and you think okay well this guy is a um you know an organized professional experienced dignified coach but at the end of the day as important as that is to a franchise that is just you know kind of 
has chaos in its DNA. Um, when you look at the roster, and in two two off seasons in, it is you know almost exclusively Ron Rivera's roster by by inheritance and choice and keeping these people or by acquisition. Um, what you have is foundational pieces. If you look up and down the fifty three, you know I think you could make a really strong argument that there are really only four, and maybe even fewer than that, absolute shoe in players that you know and want to keep here for, you know, in theory, if this if this team is ready to win and, and be good and make deep playoff runs in, say, two years. And that would be Terry McLaurin uh, is indisputable. I think Chase Young has to work out if this is going to work out because um, the talent is there. And yes, we've discussed the inconsistency and now the injury, but, but he would have to be included in that group. Um, Jonathan Allen has signed an extension and, you know, they can get out of that money, but he's having his best year um, and seems uh, likely to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. And, and Cam Curl, who, you know, is their best find as a seventh round pick, um, who looks like he's, he's ready to become an elite safety. Um, But beyond that, you know, is Brandon Sheriff going to be here at $18 million a year? You could argue that's terrible roster building. Um, Chase really is a nice player. He's injured now, you know, but okay, maybe count him in. Um, but it's not, it's not deep in talent. It's not deep in impact. And so how, how does that translate into their further along um, with another a fifth straight losing season than they were under any of the other coaches that they've had over the last two decades? So the loss at the Cowboys on Sunday night, of course, was dreadful. Uh, On the one hand, Washington has had these hellacious last few weeks with the COVID-19 outbreak and the injuries and now this DeShazer Everett situation. But on the other hand, plenty of other NFL teams are dealing with stuff and they're not all losing 56-14. I mean, that really was a jarring final score. What to you is the proper way for a Washington football team fan to process what happened on Sunday night? Well, I think it's it's basically what you said, Al. It's 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 all the excuses are legitimate, and that performance is not acceptable. Um, that was a non-competitive performance, essentially from the first snap, um, and it included you know dissension on the sidelines. And, and I'm not going to you know say that this reveals ongoing tensions between two guys who have been teammates since since college, but it's also not nothing. And, and you know, it's not nothing that Chris Collinsworth is saying on national TV that, that that's embarrassing for the team and it's embarrassing for the organization um, because it is. And, and if you're, you know, if you're sitting in the two chairs where we're sitting and in the chairs that all the Washington football team fans are sitting, that's not an isolated embarrassment. That is, you know, the latest in a series of embarrassments that goes back um, you know, decades and it includes, you know, other national TV drubbings on field stuff, but it includes all the off field stuff too. So I think as you process it, um, it's a data point for sure. And it reflects poorly on the Rivera regime, but it also is just a, a perfectly fit piece of the puzzle that, that, um, you know, that fits perfectly with everything that's happened over, over two, two decades. Um, I think, in terms of the Rivera regime, it matters now much more how they play the next two weeks. Um, there's more riding on these two weeks, I think, to, to get 
the franchise and the fan base um, feeling like, okay, this is this is pointed in the right direction. Um, they're going to have a losing season. They're almost certainly going to miss the playoffs. <laughs> but if they pick themselves up after that disaster, then maybe there's a way for the fan base to, to feel like, okay, there's some pieces here. We, we know who we are. Um, there, there's things to get excited about going into next year. If there's similar disasters than the last two weeks, how does anybody feel good about the Rivera regime going into 2022? We're talking Washington football team with Barry's Verluga, columnist for the Washington Post. You can read his latest column on the Washington football team at WashingtonPost.com. So Ron Rivera officially has the title of just head coach for the Washington football team, but he obviously is a lot more than just the head coach. He's in charge of football operations. He has talked a ton about changing the culture of the organization. So you have him trying to rebuild football operations, and you also have him trying to rebuild the culture of the organization. Neither task is easy. The two tasks are related. Which task to you is the more difficult one? Oh, man. I mean, the football is proving to be difficult, it it, it seems. Um, But I also would argue that the culture that he builds on his roster and with his coaching staff has to be almost divorced from the culture of the entire operation. And, and I think if you're a Washington football fan, um, you would want it to be that way because that would mean that ownership is divorced from football, which is what people have wanted here for years and years and years. It's almost like if he can isolate his side of the operation and say, this is how we're going to do things. And, you know, Dan Snyder can go, you know, sue his uh, former minority owners and, um, you know, defend himself in uh, the Wilkinson investigation and deal with all that mayhem that seems to go along the side of, of working at the Washington football team. Um, Then he's done a successful job. Now, I mean, as the football Part of it um, goes, though, you know, you can scrutinize his record uh, going back to Carolina, which was, of course, highlighted by a 15-1 run to the Super Bowl with an MVP quarterback playing at almost an unprecedented level um, that year. Um, But there's only three winning seasons there, Um, and they're good winning seasons. They're winning seasons that that Washington doesn't have, you know, 12 and four. Um, they're not just nine and seven. So, so he's, he's had very, very good seasons, but they haven't been consistent, you know, just, okay, we're 10 and six, we're 11 and five or whatever, do the math with 17 game season now. Um, so I think there's a, a lot to, to look at and wonder about um, and wonder, you know, did they make the right choice to get this? What, what do you want from your football team? You want it to be, annually in contention for the playoffs and again at least occasionally a threat to be uh to make a deep run that that doesn't describe this franchise for a quarter century um so he does you're right al i mean his his task is enormous on on both fronts um i think he's probably a little bit ahead on the culture side than he is on the football side at the moment There are a lot of ways to view what Ron Rivera is trying to do with the Washington football team's football operations. One of the most simplistic ways, but heck, maybe the most accurate way is to say, well, this is just all about quarterback. And until the Washington football team gets itself a true franchise quarterback, Washington is just not going to be 
a very good football team. Uh, do you think that that is, in fact, the way to be viewing what Ron is trying to do with football operations? I, I mean, I think it's a number one top, you know, foremost priority and should have been from from day one. I, I do think there are other aspects to it. But I, I, yeah, I've been. Yeah, I think I've used this line a million times. Like I, I'm basically with this franchise, I've got a, a two pronged xylophone in front of me and I'm just banging the heck out of the two prongs and they are owner and quarterback, yeah. owner and quarterback. You yeah. know, those are, those are the things that matter the most. Um, and so I think, and I wrote in the column, you know, I think if, if you're going to identify uh, Rivera's greatest sin over the first two off seasons, um, it was not, working towards a long-term solution at quarterback. Now, when he got here, um, he had, you know, Dwayne Haskins, who was a, a first-round pick only a year before. Could you argue that he was backed in a corner? Like, he's got to see, what, what does this guy have? Okay, <clears throat> sure, that's fine. By the end of that first offseason, I mean, that first season, you know, Haskins was no longer on the team. Um, they had to make us uh, try to figure out a solution. And they did, you know, they did try to deal for Matthew Stafford, which would have been a little bit more of a long term solution. But they ended up signing a guy, a uh, 38 year old journeyman who, you know, was even if Ryan Fitzpatrick had worked out, he was only going to work out for one year. So that gets you nowhere. You're, you're still going into 2022 being like, well, okay, he had a good year. You're bringing him back at 39. You're you're wondering where you're going. So, um, it, they have needs across the board, maybe everywhere except defensive line. Um, but I, I can't I can't see how this offseason isn't just an obsessive obsessive search for a quarterback. Yeah, it certainly feels that way. Something that gets said a lot about the Washington football team, and like the quarterback thing, this too may be true, uh, is that Washington will never have sustained success as long as Dan Snyder is the owner. Now, he clearly makes things much more difficult, but something that I've always come back to is, well, there are examples in sports of great teams with difficult owners. The New York Yankees with George Steinbrenner come to mind. Uh, George Steinbrenner meddled a ton. He fired managers like crazy. He sounded off to the media a lot. And yet the Yankees won a number of World Series with him as owner. Do you subscribe to this notion that Washington will never have sustained success as long as Dan is the owner? I mean, it's a tremendous impediment, I think. And and I think your Steinbrenner comp is good. I also think that's absolutely the the exception um you know james dolan is a terrible owner with the knicks the knicks have been terrible and terrible for for years um it's possible but i think that there's nothing in the history in snyder's history um that indicates he has really learned much i mean you know you go back to that haskins pick uh, all all evidence is that um the owner was behind taking uh, taking Dwayne Haskins in the first round when when the coaching staff didn't didn't want to do that. Um, that's very very recent evidence that he meddled in football and that meddling set the the franchise back. You know how many years? I mean that 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 they're still looking for the quarterback three years later. So um, I I'm very much on the side that he is the root of the problems. Um, the overarching problem, the thing that everything comes back to. And, and it is, it's got, you know, the one thing this fan base is, is unified about is 
they can't stand the owner. Yeah. Um, and and so it it and I don't think at this point if they made a if they made a run to a Super Bowl or, or God forbid a run for to the championship, um, I, I do not think that the fan base would turn and say, "Well, thank goodness Dan Dan learned and he got better and and we love him now." And I, I just I think it's irreversible. Um, and not to mention, you know, all the craziness that that he brings on himself by, you know, the 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 culture he fostered and allowed to exist over, over years, and then the you know nitpicking legal stuff that that he you know furthers and and allows to extend and becomes um you know a a story alongside the football stuff so i think the task to win with daniel steiner as an as the owner is is monumental monumental yeah i certainly will not dispute you on that one of the interesting aspects of ron rivera with the washington football team is that we still don't know much if anything about his contractual status, uh, a five-year deal is sort of industry standard for an NFL head coach, but we don't know the length of Ron's deal with Washington. That said, when it comes to how long Ron has to get this thing turned around, what do you think the answer is? Uh, we know that we never know with the owner, but we also know that, in fairness to Dan, he has given his last two full-time head coaches, Mike Shanahan and Jay Gruden, at least four seasons each, and Jay got five-plus seasons. Uh, what do you think is the true timeline by which Ron needs to get this program to a much better place? Well, I mean, I think I've got to think he's, you know, got at least through next season, right? Not, not, it's not a five games in type of thing. Um, but, but that again comes back to a little bit what I was referring to with these last two games of the year, which in theory are meaningless, but in terms of like momentum and direction and, and feeling good about things, um, the style and the optics matter. Uh, and I think that's true for, for all of next season. I mean, Al, you know how these, the, this football team seasons tend to go. I mean, we, we never sit here and are like, Oh wow. Eight, eight games in the year. They're six and two. Um, they're, they're, you know, the last time that happened was Jim Zorn's first year and, and they ended up missing the playoffs anyway, um, because they had a horrendous finish. So it's always this kind of, even this year when they're going to miss the playoffs, the hope came because they had, they went from two and six to six and six. And wouldn't it be amazing? And wouldn't it, wouldn't you feel different about Ron Rivera's tenure? If you got to the nine week point and they were seven and two, it's just like unfamiliar, it's just incomprehensible uh, around here. So, I mean, that's kind of a meandering way of saying, I can't imagine he doesn't have at least through next year. And then, the style and kind of does it feel like can you, can you ask the question that I tried to ask in my column today? How do you feel about uh, two years in? How do you feel about the rebuild? Well, if it's three years in, you better be feeling pretty good. You better be saying, okay, those guys are are foundational pieces. Um, Here are some other fine foundational pieces that we've identified. We've had a good draft. We had a good off season. Uh, we feel good about our coordinators and our coaching staff. There's been measurable progress in the in the results and the record, but there's also been kind of visceral project progress in how you feel about watching the games and the confidence level and the decision making and and all that stuff. And there are not 56 to 14 losses because that's that's just not acceptable. Yeah, no doubt. Barry, always love talking with you, man. Thanks so much for coming on, and all the best to you. Thanks, Al. I appreciate it. Have a great New Year.
Well, it is impossible to escape COVID-19 conversation in sports right now. We're all sick of hearing and reading about COVID, but it's not going away. And it is all over the place in sports in terms of, you know, who has it, who's in, who's out, etc. We've talked so much about the Washington football team's COVID-19 outbreak. The Capitals and the NHL as a whole have been dealing with major COVID-19 issues. And the Wizards and the NBA as a whole, have been dealing with major COVID-19 issues, and the Wizards right now are missing a lot of guys. The Wizards on Tuesday night fell to 17-17 and with a 119-112 loss at the Miami Heat. The Wizards for this game had eight players in the NBA's health and safety protocols. Yeah, eight players. Uh, those eight players, Bradley Beal, Kentavious Caldwell-Pope, Montrez Harrell, Aaron Holiday. Haul Neto, Anthony Gill, Rui Hachimura, and Thomas Bryant. Now, Bryant would not have played anyway. He hasn't played this season as he continues to recover from a partially torn left ACL that was suffered last January. Uh, who knows if Rui would have played? He has been getting close to playing, but he hasn't played this season due to personal reasons. But still, the Wizards were missing so many guys on Tuesday night. Uh, Bradley Beal now has missed three consecutive games due to him being in the NBA's health and safety protocols. Although, Wizards insider Ava Wallace on Tuesday evening reported that Beal now has received a COVID-19 vaccine uh, that could get him out of being in the NBA's health and safety protocols sooner. The NBA, by the way, has altered its COVID-19 policy. NBA players who test positive for COVID-19 now have a quicker path to return to play. The biggest change, isolation periods for players who test positive may now be significantly shortened down to six days from what had been the uh, usual 10 days uh, provided those players are asymptomatic and meet other testing standards. Look, the NBA, like the NFL, understands that these lengthy isolation periods aren't necessary for players who have been vaccinated for COVID-19 and for players who have COVID-19 but are asymptomatic of COVID-19. It's good to see pro sports leagues coming to this realization of, you know, unfortunately, the virus isn't going anywhere. And the science does suggest that, you know, if you are vaccinated and you are asymptomatic, you don't necessarily have to sit out for a week plus. And so we had this Wizards game at the Heat on Tuesday night, and the Wizards lost. Uh, the Wizards fell to 500. They now are just 7-14 and 14 since their 10-3 and three start to the season. Look, I can't kill the Wizards for this loss. I mean, again, they were without eight guys. The Wizards had eight guys in the NBA's health and safety protocols. The Wizards' five starters for this game were Spencer Dinwiddie, Corey Kispert, Kyle Kuzma, Denny Avdia, and Daniel Gafford, and the Wizards in the third quarter trilled by 28 points at 85-57. Now, the Wizards did then go on a 52-30 run to cut their deficit to six at 115-109 in the final minute of the fourth quarter, but it was too late by then. Uh, The Wizards' three-point defense was not good on Tuesday night. The Wizards allowed the Heat to go 16 of 34 on threes. The Wizards were sloppy. Wizards committed 18 turnovers to the Heat's eight. The Wizards did battle. Uh, the Wizards in a fourth quarter that they won 39-28, went 7-13 on threes, but the Wizards over the first three quarters went just 10-29 of 29 on threes. Uh, Spencer Dinwiddie came up big for the Wizards offensively on Tuesday night. He played for 41 minutes, 45 seconds as a starter, and he had another good game in a game in which Bradley Beal 
did not play. Dinwiddie went 4-10 on threes, 4-6 on twos, finished with 24 points, 11 assists versus three turnovers and seven rebounds, including three offensive boards. It has been undeniable. Spencer Dinwiddie in games in which Bradley Beal does not play does quite well. Spencer Dinwiddie in games in which Bradley Beal does play does not do as well. Uh, Kyle Kuzma on Tuesday night, two of six on three, six of 13 on twos, finished with 22 points, seven rebounds and three assists versus two turnovers and 33-36 as a starter. Daniel Gafford on Tuesday night, seven of seven from the field, all twos. He finished with 16 points, 11 rebounds, including four offensive boards and three assists versus three turnovers and 36-25 as a starter. Corey Kispert as a starter, four of nine on threes, did go just one of five on twos, but he finished with 14 points, three assists versus one turnover and three rebounds in 38 minutes, 42 seconds of playing time. And Davies Bertans, who has not done much this season, uh, did do quite a bit on Tuesday night, 21 minutes, 14 seconds off the bench, five of 10 on threes, finished with 19 points. But hard to win when, again, you have eight players in the NBA's health and safety protocols. Next up for the Wizards, home to the Cleveland Cavaliers, Thursday night at 7. Well, we on Tuesday night had a Maryland men's basketball game for the first time in a long time. The Terrapins had not played since December 12th due to their holiday break. Looked as if they were not going to be playing for even longer, but they got in a game on Tuesday night. The Terps improved to 7-4 and four overall with a 76-55 win over Lehigh at Xfinity Center in College Park on Tuesday night. This was the Terps' first game since their 70-68 win over then number 20 Florida in Brooklyn, New York on December 12th. Yeah, the Terps had not played since December 12th, more than two weeks ago. Uh, the Terps were supposed to face Loyola of Maryland at Xfinity Center in College Park on Tuesday night, but that game was canceled due to, yes, COVID-19 protocols within the Loyola program. The Terps had not announced that they were facing Lehigh until this past Sunday night. And so the Terps played a much-needed game on Tuesday night. Terps needed some work in terms of an actual game, and Terps ended up winning uh, rather comfortably. Now, the Terps uh, did lead by just three points at the half at 37-34, but the Terps then won the second half 39-21. The Terps in the second half held Lehigh to just two of 10 on threes and just three of 18 on twos, although the Terps in the second half did go just 2-12 on threes. Three-point shooting remains a weakness for Maryland, but the Terps out-rebounded Lehigh 47-27, including having 15 offensive rebounds to Lehigh 7. And the Terps went 23-26 of 26 on free throws. Lehigh went 12-13 of 13 on free throws. Uh, to me, the most encouraging thing for Maryland in this win over Lehigh was the shooting of Eric Ayala. Uh, Ayala went three of six on threes and five of seven on twos. He finished with 20 points and two steals in just 27 minutes as a starter. He did have no assists versus three turnovers, but this marked the second consecutive quality shooting game for Ayala. Uh, Ayala in that win over Florida in Brooklyn went three of five on threes, three of six on twos, finished with 19 points in 38 minutes as a starter. He had been struggling. Ayala, over the Terps' previous three games, had combined 3 of 12 on threes and 3 of 16 on twos, totaled just 21 points. Interim head coach Danny Manning during his virtual post-game press conference on Tuesday night on Eric Ayala. Very pleased with how he's, he's playing. You know, he's responding very well. You know, the Florida game, he um, scored the ball really well for us. 
this game he came out and got going and scored the ball really well for us. And, um, you know, that's what we need to continue to have from him, um, his, his aggressiveness. Now, you're going to make shots, you're going to miss shots. That's all part of the, you know, the ebb and flow of the ball game. But I like his aggressiveness. I like the percentage that he's shooting the ball at. You know, he's, he's very efficient with his, with his shot attempts and makes. So we have to continue to go down that path for him. Yeah, good to see Eric Ayala doing better. Uh, some other standouts for the Terps on Tuesday night. Dante Scott went just one of four on threes, but also four of eight on twos. He finished with 17 points and eight rebounds in just 27 minutes as a starter. Hakeem Hart went 0 of three on threes, but two of two on twos, six of six on free throws, finished with 10 points, five steals, five rebounds, and two assists versus three turnovers in just 26 minutes as a starter. The Terps did get a bit of an injury scare. The Rhode Island transfer point guard Fats Russell in the second half appeared to bang a knee against a Lehigh player's knee. Had to be helped off the court, so we'll see if there's any concern with Fats Russell moving forward. The Terps do have a quick turnaround. Their next game is scheduled for Thursday night. The Terps are scheduled to host Brown Thursday night at 7. All right, we go from Maryland basketball to Maryland football, and it does look like we will have our bowl game, the Pinstripe Bowl, between Maryland and Virginia Tech, and so let us do a proper Goldilocks pick for this game. Goldilocks, my picks against the spreads for Maryland, Virginia Tech, Virginia, and Navy. The record for this season, eight games above 500 at 26 and 18. So it has been hard to be optimistic that this pinstripe bowl will be played, given the many bowl games that have been canceled due to COVID-19. Even though it is debatable whether any of these games should be being canceled, uh, the pinstripe bowl is taking place in New York City, which has been a hotbed for COVID-19. But the game, at least as of early Wednesday morning, uh, is happening. Maryland versus Virginia Tech in the pinstripe bowl at Yankee Stadium on Wednesday afternoon at 2.15. The line for the game per win bet is Maryland minus three and a half. As a Maryland fan, uh, as someone who went to Maryland, class of 2001, I really am not that invested in the outcome of this game. Uh, Bowl games that aren't college football playoff games and aren't New Year's Day bowl games really don't matter that much. Uh, These are pseudo exhibition games. The value of bowl games that aren't college football playoff games and aren't New Year's Day bowl games are that the games can be very good experiences for the players and that the games allow for extra practices for the teams. Honestly, that may be the best part of all for a program like Maryland under head coach Mike Loxley, this additional practice time over the last few weeks for this bowl game. But if the Terrapins lose to the Hokies, I'll be disappointed, but I won't be like all bent out of shape. The Terps bowl game, quote unquote, was the team's regular season finale at Rutgers. The Terps needed to win that game to become bowl eligible, and the Terps got the win, and in emphatic fashion, the Terps concluded a 6-6 six and six regular season with a 40-16 win at Rutgers on November 27th. That game was like a playoff game for the Terps, and the Terps got the win in that game. But here we are, and the Terps on Wednesday, which is December 29th, will be playing their first game since November 27th. This is almost like a different season for the Terps. Who knows truly how invested the players are in winning the game. So no, I, as a Terps fan, I'm not putting a ton of stock in this game. I want the Terps to win, but I'm not going to be furious if they don't win. Another thing with this bowl game and bowl games in general is that you have so many players who end up 
not playing, either due to opting out of the game or due to transferring. And what is really interesting about this Maryland-Virginia Tech matchup in this pinstripe bowl is that the Terps are going to be at, or at least close to, full strength in terms of the team's healthy players. The Hokies are not among the many Hokies who were with the team in the regular season but are not playing in the pinstripe bowl. Quarterback Braxton Burmeister, he on December 20th entered the NCAA transfer portal. Receiver Tavion Robinson, he on December 2nd announced that he was entering the NCAA transfer portal and on December 15th announced that he was transferring to Kentucky. Receiver Trey Turner, he on December 1st announced that he was opting out of the pinstripe bowl and would be entering the 2022 NFL draft. Edge defender Amare Barno, he on December 6th announced that he was opting out of the pinstripe bowl and would be entering the 2022 NFL draft. Interior defensive lineman Jordan Williams, he on December 3rd announced that he was opting out of the pinstripe bowl and would be entering the 2022 NFL draft. And corner Jermaine Waller, he on December 8th announced that he was opting out of the pinstripe bowl and would be entering the 2022 NFL draft. If you are a Virginia Tech fan, you know that those are a lot of key players right there. The Hokie starting quarterback for the pinstripe bowl will be the Texas A&M transfer, Connor Blumrick. So you think about Virginia Tech, it isn't a great team to begin with. Tech will be without a number of key players. Tech is in the midst of this transition period from interim head coach J.C. Price to new head coach Brent Pry. The Terps 100% should win this game. But if you're a Maryland fan, (laughs) you know that the Terps winning this game is far from a given. The Terps defense isn't good, and you just don't know what to expect from college kids in these bowl games that happen a month plus after the ends of teams' regular seasons. If Terps quarterback Talia Tungabailoa plays well, then Maryland should win. But I will not be surprised at all if Maryland loses. All of that said, I will take the Terps. Give me Maryland. Minus three and a half. Make money, money, make money, money, money. All right. That will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Thursday show, episode 218. We'll feature plenty of the Washington football team off it on Wednesday, beginning the team's practice week for this Sunday afternoon's game against the Philadelphia Eagles at FedEx Field at 1. We expect to hear from Ron Rivera and Taylor Heineke on Wednesday afternoon by a post-practice Zoom press conferences as Washington, in theory, is having the team's first normal practice week in weeks uh, due to the team's COVID-19 outbreak essentially being over and the upcoming game being a game on a Sunday afternoon at 1. Also on Thursday's show, a post-game, the Pinstripe Bowl. Maryland versus Virginia Tech at Yankee Stadium on Wednesday afternoon at 2.15. And a post-game, the Capitals' first game since December 19th. The Caps are scheduled, and I stress that word, scheduled, uh, to host the Nashville Predators Wednesday night at 7. Have a great rest of your Wednesday, and I'll talk to you on Thursday. Joe Morris ran the Giants to victory in their first meeting, but today's rematch is at RFK Stadium, where the skins are hard to beat and where tickets are impossible to find. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts 
so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.